children's choir this morning, adult choir, you might have run for your money with, uh, with these kids. We, uh, we loved, loved, loved having them this week, and uh, I loved watching Pastor Ben lead them in worship. He really loves leading children in worship, so I enjoyed watching that this week. And of course, these kids are prepared um, to worship, many of them, because they've come up through uh, Kimberly Milner's children's ministry. So I looked at this week as your pastor, and I'm just thankful for the team that we have in place here. We have a really good team in place, and that includes you as our servant volunteers. We could not do any of this, uh, not for the body of Christ, right, that we're all members of. Um, if you have a child that enjoyed singing this week, I do just want to remind you that the Music and Arts Choir continues this Wednesday at 6.30. They have a couple of songs they're going to be learning this summer, and then they're going to be uh, leading us in worship uh, with those songs on August 21st at our summer night of worship. So I'd uh, love for your kids to come to that. And then also remember this Wednesday night, we start our Revelation series. That will be this Wednesday night at 6.30 in the Family Life Center. Uh, we will kick it off. We're only going through one verse on, on Wednesday, all right? Revelation 1.1. So you have no, no reason not to do your homework before you come. Um, bring your own food, by the way, at 5.30. We'll just bring your own dinner, all eat together, and then 6.30 we'll, um, we'll, have, we'll have worship. All right, I wanted to, um, this morning, get back to Luke. So we are in Luke 21, and we're also going to, we're not going to skip out on the very end of Luke 20. We'll, we'll tackle that in just a moment. I once heard D. James Kennedy tell a story about an evangelistic crusade that was happening in Africa, and at that crusade, uh, this guy is up there preaching, this missionary, and the, the, the Lord is working, okay? People's hearts are being pierced by the gospel, and they're responding, and the way they were responding was by bringing ears of corn and laying it on the altar, because they didn't have money to come and lay on the altar. They had crops, so everybody was bringing their corn and laying it on the altar as um, a sign of their devotion to God. They're like, man, he, he has saved us from our sins. They're responding to the gospel. They're like, Lord, here's our corn. You know what I mean? That's what they had to give. Well, then he sees this one woman come up behind all of them with the corn, and she takes it uh, a single uh, coin, and she places that on the altar, and the missionary could recognize the coin from where he was standing on the stage. He recognized that it represented basically an American dollar, and he was like, where did she get that? Because it was so out of the ordinary for someone in that village to have actual currency of any sort. So he tracked her down afterwards, this, this woman, and he said, ma'am, uh, he said, where did you get this, this coin from? And he confessed that deep down he wondered had she come by it through some nefarious means, and that's kind of why he was tracking her down. He said, where'd you get this coin from? She said she had been a Christian for 50 years, and she had always wanted to do something big for God, but because she was so poor, she felt she couldn't. And so on that day, she had gone to a nearby village, and she had sold herself into slavery for that coin. She gave up her entire life for that coin and then laid it on the altar and he said why would you do that and she said well I was enslaved in my sins and Jesus saved me from the slavery that I had to sin and so why would I not sell myself into slavery to give him everything that I own obviously that is generosity pushed to its extreme boundaries that is open-handedness to the extreme but that heart her heart was cheerful, and it was sacrificial, and it was filled with gratitude. And that should be the heart behind our giving as well. And so this morning, we see Jesus saying something to us 
uh, about giving, and we also see him saying something to us by what he sees in this passage, which we'll see in just a moment. So in Luke 21, 1-4, uh, that's the main crux of our, our, our text this morning, but right before it, at the end of um, chapter 20, here's what we get, starting in verse 45. And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. For the scribes, the same guys, by the way, who had tried to trap Jesus uh, just you know, the day before by coming to him and saying, is it rightful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Uh, those guys used religion as a means to power and to privilege. And their pride and their greed produced empty religion. Religion that was concerned with appearances, religion that really had no concern Uh, for the adoration of the Lord, for having a heart that is surrendered to the Lord and worshipful of the Lord. And this empty religion was not harmless. It was harmful. It was poisonous to the people it came in contact with. It was oppressive. And you see that in the fact that Jesus says these men have devoured widows' houses, meaning they would find ways to get their grubby fingers into the estate of a widow, and then they would suck it dry, pull all that money into the synagogue, and then send her back out into society with nothing, and whatever came of her came of her. And these guys should have known better. They should have known better to go out uh, and, and to use religion as, as a way to, um, to get attention and to get greetings in the marketplaces and to go out and make all of these flowery, um, you know, ornate prayers so that people go, look how spiritual they are. They should have known better because their job as the scribes was literally to copy the law and preserve it which means they should have known God's Word better than anyone, and they should have known that His, His law does not teach us empty external religion. That the law of God requires of us a pure and simple, single-minded devotion to the Lord, one where you don't use religion to acquire status and wealth and power. It's the opposite. You give up your status. You give up your wealth. You give up your power to the Lord as His servant. And since they should have known better, they'll be under greater condemnation. And so this sets the stage for what comes in Luke 21 when Jesus lifts his eyes and he sees a widow. And so uh, let's read there, Luke 21, starting in verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Let's pray. Lord, like Nicodemus, we come to the Word with questions. Like the Pharisees and the scribes, we can be captivated by our own desire to be right. So we turn to your Word, Spirit of God, and and, and we ask that you would not let our desire for information dominate the need we have to be transformed we need transformation more than information and and father if the information doesn't lead us to to being transformed then we're missing out 
we're falling short. So let us hear the word and let us be moved to greater faith and obedience because of it this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus looks up in this passage and he sees the rich putting their money in the temple treasury, which that was a whole lot more of an elaborate scene than a bunch of Baptists walking out of the back door and putting their money in the black box in the back, okay? It it was not discreet. Uh, There were 13 brass chests, and those 13 brass chests in the temple were called trumpets because they were shaped like reverse horns. They were narrow at the top, they were big down at the bottom. And there was a chest for new shekel dues. And for old shekel dues, there was a chest. There was another chest for the bird offering. And another chest for young birds for the whole offering. There was a chest for wood. There was another one for frankincense. Another one for gold for the mercy seat. And then there were six of them for free will offerings. And so there would have been a ton of people in Jerusalem at the temple at this time, because it is the Passover, and they're all pouring their money into the temple treasuries. And Jesus sees the rich doing this. And, and there's really no need for us to assume ill intention on all these people, right? Sometimes you read the Bible, and because um, you know people who are rich and who are uh, performing external signs of religion, sometimes they are not put in the most positive light in the Bible because they are doing things for the wrong reasons. Here, we don't need to assume that all these people have, have bad hearts and they're all coming up there and pouring in their sacks of shekels uh, in order to gain some sort of favor from the Lord and they don't really love him. Uh, they're not all hypocrites. We don't need to assume those things. However, The ability of the rich to give in a way that others cannot can absolutely lead to self-righteousness. It's a breeding ground for it. And as Americans who live much more well off than the overwhelming majority of this world, we got to stay aware of that, right? We got to be aware of the fact that having an abundance and being able to give out of that abundance can certainly lead to self-righteousness if it takes you to a place where you think, because I can give more, I am better than everyone else. Now, I hope that's not your heart this morning, and and certainly Jesus does as well, as we'll see in this passage. In contrast to the rich, the poor widow enters into the scene. She's poverty-stricken. That's not unusual for a widow. The Bible groups widows with the most vulnerable members of society, with orphans and with aliens. James says that religion that is pure and that is faultless is to look after uh, orphans, not orphos, because those are not real, orphans and widows in their distress. So you can see how uh, when God talks about widows, he groups them in with the least of these, right? With the most helpless in society. And in that culture, it made sense because particularly if a widow had no children, she was left with no one to care for her. She was a voiceless, helpless person in Jewish society. This is why when Paul wrote to Timothy and he gave instructions on caring for widows who are widows indeed, who had no family to look after them, he said this, Honor widows who are widows indeed, but if any widow has a children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. So if a widow has family around to care for her, the church doesn't need to put her on the widow list. Let her family do what they are supposed to do and, and, and honor God in the way they're supposed to honor God by caring for uh, this family member who is likely a matriarch of their family. But if she's got nobody to care for her, the church has to step up. Otherwise, she'll be on her own in society, and the Lord doesn't want that. 
So here's this poor woman. She's at the bottom of society's social ladder. She's the exact opposite of the scribes that Jesus uh, warns his disciples about at the end of Luke 20. She comes up and she puts in two small copper coins. The Greek word for the coins is lepton, and it literally means a peeled coin. So these are like thin little coins, okay? Um, Mark tells us that these two coins amount to a cent. So it's two thin little coins that add up to a penny. A lot of times if you're walking through you know, the parking lot of Kroger, right, you see a penny laying on the ground, I would guess that the majority of you don't even stop for the penny, especially in the age of COVID. You're like, you know, no need to take the risk, right? I'll just leave it on the ground, not bringing whatever's on that penny into my car. So you just leave it there. I have kids who want to pick up everything on the ground. Every time you go on a, a, a walk, there's a new rock that comes home as a souvenir. You know what I mean? Um, I can totally see how they got away with selling rocks as pets in boxes in the 70s. Kids love a rock. So my kids just want to pick up everything. If they see a penny, they want to pick it up. And I'm like, listen, we can let the penny go. You know what I mean? Let's just leave the penny there. And, and so most of us wouldn't even stop for a penny. And most people in the streets of Jerusalem would not have stopped to pick these two small, thin little copper coins up off the ground. They would just leave it there. But she approaches the treasury, and this is what she's got. A penny. Two thin little coins add up to a penny. Likely wearing pretty tattered clothing if this is all she's got. She drops them in. Probably didn't make nearly as much noise as some of the others who came up and poured their coins into the treasury. No one probably even noticed it. In verse 4, Jesus tells us this is all that she had to live on. She put in all that she had to live on. If she had just taken one of the thin little coins and she had dropped that in and kept the other thin little coin for herself, I think most of us would be like, hey, sister, I mean, that's awesome. That's awesome, because I would guess that there's few in the room tithing at 50% this morning. You know what I mean? Like, that, that, that's a pretty high standard. And she does that. She, 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 she could have done that, right? And we would have all said, way to go. That's awesome. What a sacrifice. But, but she actually goes beyond the 50%, and she gives God everything that she has. And one of my favorite things about this passage is it simply says in verse 2, and he saw a poor widow. you got all these rich people coming up, pouring in their corns, right? And, and you would think that most of the people that are in the temple, they're watching the temple treasury scene, and they've got their eyes on the rich. Who's going to put in the most? Look at Obadiah over there. I bet he had a good year. Look at how much he poured into the frankincense horn. You know what I mean? Like everybody would have been watching anybody but her. But Jesus looks up, he sees the rich, and then he sees this widow, and his attention turns to her in an instant, and he doesn't take his eyes off of her for the rest of the passage. She gets his attention. I love that about this text, that Jesus sees her. Why is it that his attention is turned to her? Why does he turn away from all the rich putting their money in, and he looks at her? It's because out of her poverty, she gave everything that she had. Most of the rich were probably coming and giving out of their surplus. In fact, the Lord tells us this, right? They gave out of their abundance. But she gave everything that she had. And in light of that, 
Jesus puts his attention on her because of the heart behind what she has done, which we'll get to in a moment, but also because of the amount that she's given. Now, worldly calculators, right? Like if you, if you were to get Warren Buffett on this text and ask him to, to teach it, he would probably look at this and go, man, Jesus' math doesn't add up. I mean, dump out all the money that these rich people gave into the temple treasuries, and you would have just like a, a, a stack of shekels, you know, a pile of shekels, Scrooge McDuck style, big old, you know, hills of shekels, right? You could do a cannonball into. And over here, you've just got these two little lepton, you've got these two little thin copper coins. How in the world could Jesus look at this big pile of money and these two little coins and say that she gave more? The world would look at it and say, look, it's a nice try. We applaud it. I mean, even if you're not religious, you would look at it and go, that's, that's some admirable piety. But if we're going to have a competition about who gave more, it's no, it's no contest. Clearly, the people who have piled up their riches over here and poured them into the temple treasury, clearly they have given more. But Jesus empties out the treasuries, and he's got all the money over here in these two little copper coins, and he holds those up, and he says, she gave the most. Which tells us that there is a difference between worldly value and kingdom value. The rich tossed in offering that had great worldly value. Impressive to anybody watching. This woman impressed the only one in the crowd whose opinion actually matters, and that is Jesus. And so her giving, while the world may have looked at it and said there's no value there at all, we wouldn't even stop to pick those coins up off the street. Her giving had kingdom value in the eyes of Jesus. He loves it. He elevates it above all the other giving that takes place in the temple on this day. Why? What gives her offering kingdom value? Well, number one, her giving had kingdom value because it was sacrificial. It cost her something. In 2 Samuel 24, there's this scene where David is going to build an altar for the Lord. And he wants to buy it from this man named Aruna, the Jebusite. It says in 2 Samuel 24, verse 18, So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up. Erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. Aruna looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Aruna said, Why is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for burnt offering, the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So Aruna sees David coming, he goes down, he bows down in front of him, he's like, look, you can have the threshing floor. You you can have these cattle for the sacrifices. You're the king, man. I'm here to serve you. Let me give it all to you. And David says to him, no. Because he's not about to go offering up worship to God that takes no skin off of his back. 
David wanted to feel his wallet was lighter. He wanted to be sacrificial in his worship. And that's so important because in sacrifice, we demonstrate what we value. In sacrifice, we demonstrate what we truly value. So, for example, um, my, you know, as I was coming up through uh, grade school, I watched my parents, and my mother worked really hard, didn't have a college education, but she worked really hard, moved her way up in the world, surpassed people who were more educated than her, and um, had a great job working in an architecture firm. I watched the sacrifices she made, the drive to Richmond every day to do that work, and she did it uh, to, and to put me and my sister through college, right? My dad worked so much overtime for Dominion, and I would watch him uh, take off to, to Mount Storm, West Virginia, and to go in in the middle of the night in storms, and, and he'd be out in the snowstorm skinning wire so you could get your power back on, right? And I would watch him do all that and make those sacrifices so that when the day came for me to go to seminary, I didn't pay for a penny of it. My parents were able to pay for that because of the hard work that they did. Now, a lot of you are listening to that, and that's your story as well. You made sacrifices so you could help pay for your kid's education, or you could help pay for your kid's car that they needed, or you could help pay for whatever clothes they wanted or, or needed, or whatever that Christmas present is, and you just wanted to see that joy on their face. And you didn't question it because you're devoted to your children, right? You love your children. You love your grandchildren, and so you are willing to sacrifice for them, and your sacrifice on their behalf demonstrates to the world that you value these little people, that you'll do anything to see them succeed. The way we give says something about our priorities, and that goes for how we give our money, but it also goes, this is so much bigger than money, right? It goes in how we invest our time, and it also goes in how we use our skills and our talents. Look at what Paul says to the Corinthians about the Macedonian churches and how they gave to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So the Christians in Macedonia, if you read about the region, were much more poor than the Christians in Corinth. And as Paul writes to the Corinthians, he's like, hey man, those poor Macedonians stepped up and, and they gave out of their lack. Their generosity abounded out of their lack, not out of their abundance, and they gave. Why? Because they value their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, therefore they gave out of their poverty. David valued worship, therefore he bought the threshing floor. And this widow, she values the Lord, so she gives everything that she has to him. And that means her offering has kingdom value. It costs something. Secondly, her giving had kingdom value because of the attitude of her heart, which I mentioned earlier. She came to the Lord as she gives with the right motives, right? That's not explicit in the text, but it's implicit because we know the Son of God does not applaud giving with wrong motives. We just saw him at the end of chapter 20 um, absolutely indict the scribes for the fact that they performed their religion with the wrong motives. And so God is not going to applaud the wrong motives. Jesus is not going to applaud the wrong motives. So she had the right motives. Her attitude and her heart was right. And this is part of the reason why she has kingdom value in her giving in Jesus' eyes. You know who doesn't care about your attitude as you give? The IRS. 
They don't care at all. Like, you could be like, I- I'm going to send in my, my, my check. I'm going to pay it, okay? But I'm also going to write them a letter, and I'm going to let them know that taxation is theft. And I'm done with these people, and I'm just going to let them know, I'm still paying this because I don't want to go to jail, but I don't like you, okay? You can send that letter all you want. They're going to open the envelope. They're going to go, we got a letter, we got a check, and put that letter over here in the special filing cabinet called the trash, and then we're going to take this check and cash it because we don't care about the motives of the people who send this money in, right? You could even drive up to Boston and throw some tea in the water if it makes you feel better about yourself, but as long as you pay your taxes, they really do not care, all right? They don't care. For more reasons than one, we can be thankful God is not like the IRS, right? He cares about the motive of your giving. He doesn't want checks that are begrudgingly cut for his kingdom. He cares about the heart behind the giving. Let's go back to those Macedonians in 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 3. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints, and this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They gave of their own accord, their arms were not twisted. In fact, they begged to participate in the giving. They were like, please let us get, on, get in on this kingdom investment, right? And then look what Paul says. They first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They were surrendered to Jesus in their hearts, and that is what made them eager and willing to give to this ministry. God loves this sort of giving. Cheerful giving, joyful giving, giving where the arm is not twisted. Giving where worship is the goal. This is what He has redeemed us for. Willful, joy-filled, freely given, cheer-hearted worship. Jesus died for you to be able to participate in that. And if we want to have the sort of generosity and the sort of open-handedness that Jesus applauds, the sort of generosity that gets His attention, that turns His head, the sort of generosity that has weight on His kingdom scales, the sort of generosity that has kingdom value, even if the world would scoff at how little it is, then we must have hearts that are cheerful as we give and offering that is sacrificial as we give it. I want to tell you about one of the most open-handed men that I've ever met. His name was Al Cooper. Al attended Old Powhatan Baptist Church, which is the first church I ever worked at. Um... When I was there in 2007 and I was about to leave for seminary, we didn't see Al at church much, and he was as faithful as it gets, all right? Think of like the person that's here, you know, every time the doors open, even when we didn't tell anybody we were opening them, they just show up, right? Um, That's who Al was. But toward the end of my time at Old Palatine, he couldn't come to church because his wife, Bonnie, uh, was sick, and she was dying. And so the last few years of her life, Al was pretty much like a full-time caregiver for her. So I remember I left Old Powhatan, and then I went to seminary, and Al was still doing that work of caring for Bonnie. And then I moved to Nashville chasing a girl, and I got there, and um, I got a call one day, not long after Katie and I had gotten married, I got a call, and uh, Pastor Brad Russell Old Powhatan said, hey man, I just want you to know Bonnie passed away, Bonnie Cooper, and I was like, oh. And my heart broke, not for Bonnie, because she was, she was bound for glory, you know what I mean? We're like, hallelujah for Bonnie, but... But for Al, my heart broke because, man, his eye twinkled when he talked about that woman. Like, he loved Bonnie Cooper. 
So I thought, what is Al going to do now? Well, a couple months uh, later, I'm on the phone with Pastor Brad, and he's telling me about this mission trip they're going to take to Corn Island, Nicaragua. And uh, he says, yeah, Al's going. I was like, Cooper? Now, the reason I responded that way is Al was like 83. Okay? For him to get on a plane and travel across the world to go on this mission trip, that was no small thing for Al. But he did it. And then he just kept going on international mission trips and local mission trips. And for the end of Al's life, from the time that Bonnie died to Jesus taking him home to glory about 10 years later, for the last decade of his life, Al was just this mission-focused, pastor-supporting, local church-loving machine. He wasn't going to waste those years. The last time I saw Al Cooper, he had gotten in a car and he rode down to Seaford Baptist. He had come here to participate with us in this SBCV food packing event we had. It was one of the last things that we really got to do before COVID. And I had multiple uh, church members here coming up to me and they're like, Pastor, that old man from Powhatan, you've got to get him a chair. And I said, well, get him a chair. I mean, that's fine. We tried. He won't take the chair. So he's standing there just packing rice, packing rice. He's you know, getting up towards 90. They're really worried about him. He's shaking a little bit. And I had people that are involved in our senior ministry coming to me, and they're like, we got to do something. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. And they're like, this is not normal. And I'm like, Al's not a normal guy, all right? He's a special guy. What Al Cooper did is he took the thin coins of the years he had left and he walked up to the treasury and he put them in and he said, everything I've got, you get it, Jesus. And he had the right attitude and it was sacrificial and that is the sort of giving that turns Jesus' head. Al's life is just a small image in the larger family portrait of the church. This is what we must be. A bunch of people who are satisfied to live in anonymity, to not have our names written in history books, to cheerfully make sacrifices for the benefit of the kingdom of God, to always want to give our time and our treasure and our skill to Jesus, never wanting it to be about us, happy for the story to move along and no one to mention us, as long as we get to enter into glory hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we might be anonymous in the eyes of the world, but we will not be anonymous in the eyes of God. Because we remember the Lord's words as he speaks to Samuel when Samuel is going to find the next king of Israel. And he said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks in the outward appearance. That means that the world might look on the outward appearance of our lives and say, nothing to note here and move on. And that's fine, because the Lord looks on the heart. The world might not take a lot of notice of how much you sacrifice and how much you give, but the Lord notices. And so in the same way that the religious elite would have dismissed this widow because her offering was too small to move their needle, you might feel the world and the people around you dismiss what you do for Jesus because you think what you're doing is not moving their needle. The good news is, is you have no biblical mandate to move their needle. You have no biblical command to please them, to please the world that is around you. Neither did this woman. She wasn't concerned with any audience other than the one that she had in heaven. If she could quietly give it all to Him and He was pleased, that was enough for her. Is that enough for you? 
If you could give everything to Him and He would be pleased with your faithfulness, would you be content? Is that enough for you? Because I'm going to tell you, if that's where your heart's at, you are in prime position to be an incredibly generous person to the glory of God. And if that's where your heart's at, I would, I would not be surprised if you already are. I want to lay two charges at our feet as we wrap it up this morning. First of all, if you're a part of this, and when I say this, okay, um, I mean the kingdom, but I also mean this local church. And, and, and when I say a part of this, what I mean is that you're giving. On all three fronts that the Lord calls us to give if you're able. Money, time, skill. Th- those are the main areas of battle for us when it comes to stewardship. And if we are physically able, we should be giving all three of these things to the church. Money, time, skill. And if you are doing that, then what I want to say to you is do not grow weary in doing good. Man, it's hard when you see other people using their vacation time for beaches and sightseeing. And you're burning it for a student ministry trip that you're chaperoning with Pastor David. That's tough. It's hard when you see other people using their disposable income to build outdoor kitchens and, you know, buy fancy new pets. I don't know what people do with their money. Um, Don't stop sacrificially giving to God's global disciple-making plan that he has for the local church. Don't grow weary in doing good. But I also want to say to you that if you're not a part of this, on all three fronts, if you're holding back on any of those fronts, now is the time to invest. You know, um, I heard from, I've heard from multiple preachers over the years, the last spiritual discipline that people learn is, is giving their money. I think they're right. I think they're right when they say that. If it's the last spiritual discipline you haven't quite learned yet, I want to tell you that there is a wealth of joy waiting for you in faithfully giving from your money to the Lord. And I don't say that because I'm the pastor and I'm like, we want your money, you know, there's nothing underhanded or weirdo about it, all right? Like, I'm saying this for your joy. Like, it is a joyful thing to give to the Lord and see him use that offering and to see him provide for your needs even though you've given sacrificially. You don't want to miss out on this. So listen, if, if, if you're holding back on any of these, three, these uh, three fronts, today is the day to commit to the widow's devotion to the Lord here. To say, I want to give on all three fronts. I want to use my time to advance the kingdom through the local church. I'm going to use my talents to glorify Him in the local church. And I'm going to use my money to invest in the kingdom of God and to keep the ministry of the local church moving along. Let me just tell you, thinking about the news of this weekend, let me just tell you one way that you investing financially in the ministry of the local church impacts the world, okay? So if you give here on a Sunday morning, we take a part of what you give and we send it off to our state denomination, Southern Baptist Conservatives of Virginia, Theological Conservatives, okay, SBCV. So we send that money off to them and they use it for all sorts of missions in the state. Can I tell you one thing they're doing? SBCV is working with the Psalm 139 project to place ultrasound machines in every single Christian crisis pregnancy center in the state of Virginia. They're working on that now as we speak. So, yeah, that's, we can applaud that. We can celebrate the God of life and what he's doing to protect life. It's good. But listen, every time you give, you're helping to invest in that, to see things like that come to fruition. 
we don't want to miss out on the opportunity to be a part of what God is doing in, in these things. The people that um, worked with the kids this week at Music and Arts Camp, I imagine if you were to talk to them, they might have some stories about these children. Um, one of them stopped me because they had gotten to know Beckett this week, my son, who was not a big talker. Okay, so, uh, but if you get him going, all right, you're not going to stop him. Okay, once he gets going, he's gone. And one of our church members said, I finally got Beckett to talk this week, and I felt like I got to know him. And they were so excited about that. Man, if they hadn't given their time, they would have missed out on getting to know this young man in our church who just came to know Jesus and, and um, is really excited about it. You know what I mean? When, when we give time, talent, treasure, God returns the joy to us. And we get back so much more than we gave. It's too good to miss out on. So buy the threshing floor, give to the Macedonians, put all you've got in the treasury, give the years you have to give. This is the generosity that Jesus loves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to give, an opportunity we would not have if not for the death of your son. Lord, any act of, of religion that we would try to come up with on our own, whether it was serving with our, our, our talents or giving our time or giving our money, it would all be rooted in ugliness and pride and it would be filthy rags before you. But because of your son dying on the cross, we can offer up our money and our, our time and, and we can give up our talents. And those things can be actually given to you in a way that glorifies you and pleases your father because Jesus, you died for us. You sanctified our offerings, Lord. You purified them by dying on the cross, and now we can bring them before our Lord and glorify Him. And so, Father, I pray that we would respond to the cross with generosity. You have been generous to us in Your love there, God, so help us respond to the cross in generosity by giving, Lord, knowing that when we give, we will receive from You. And that uh, the joy we receive, uh, it dwarfs, Lord, um, even what we sacrifice and give. So thank you, God, for your goodness and your gentleness to us. And um, Lord, I pray that as we consider the greatness of who you are, we would be all the more motivated to be sacrificial and uh, that you would be glorified in the sacrifice. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.